0: Weir's World, the All Ears podcast, in association with Hoppy's Drysuit Services, keeping you dry in the wet stuff. For more information, search Hoppy's Drysuit Services on Facebook. Welcome to Weir's World, the All Ears podcast, which will take you on a roller coaster journey around the world. Follow me from Beijing to New York City and back as I share my tales to tell, encompassing the 10 years of Gliadric and the Kabbalistic Cavalry, as well as touring with some well known faces. From celebrity stories to travel nightmares, We'll be reminiscing on the ridiculousness of it all, with special guests jumping in along the way. All ears as your new favourite weekly podcast. Well, well, well.
1: Well, well, well. How well, are you? well. I'm good, how are happening? you? Wait, I'm... hold on. We're in the same room together. <laughs> we're in yeah! the same room.
0: <laughs> we actually just spoke over one another. You should have kicked me when you wanted to speak. Wait, hold on, I'll kick you now. <laughs> I wasn't was that was that obvious. Dramatic, the, theatrical effect. We'll oh, call it that. The- theatrical. Theatrical effect. Yeah, I like, I like that. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we've spent a lot of time, right? Like rattling off about having been nominated for our award, our yes. podcast award, and receiving the runner-up prize.
1: Yeah. Which was epic, by the way. We'll add that. Uh, it was epic, yeah. and you
0: know, over the years, we've been quite lucky with the with the bands and stuff as well to have um, received nominations for and. A few award wins and stuff along the way. Yeah. Um, We're actually awaiting to talk to Hollywood royalty. Mm, not any old royalty. Hollywood royalty. Hollywood royalty.
1: Yeah. Hollywood. 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 Yeah, we'll just, we'll just yeah, we that again. Yeah, we can't say that enough. Hollywood. <laughs> but actually, let's throw in another word. Local. Local. Local
0: Hollywood royalty. That's not something that you say all the time. No. That has to no, be said. definitely not. We are joined this morning by a man who has won... Oliviers, Tonys, yeah, no, numerous nominations for Emmys, Golden Globes,
2: yeah. Uh oh.
0: <laughs> good morning, Mr.
2: Alan. Coming. Uh, how
0: are you doing? How are you? How are things?
2: Pretty good, thanks, Craig. I'm in um, Adelaide, in Australia, in quarantine. So it's not morning, yeah. actually. It's it'll be evening over there. Eh? Every evening on the day after you. So what day is it with you? Monday. Tuesday. Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, yeah. Tuesday. Oh. Oh, of course you're in, where are you? <laughs> We're in Dundee. In Dundee. Um, in Dundee, Yeah, it's about, it's about five o'clock at night or something here. Five. It's so weird, I've got the, the the Adelaide's like a half an hour. I'm 13 and a half hours ahead of New York. Nice. It's got a weird half an hour thing. So it's just, everything is so confusing when you're trying to remember. And also I'm jet lagged, so it kind of gets a bit bonkers. But I'm in Adelaide and I'm um, here to, to be the curator. I've been the artistic director of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Um, so I'm here to do that, and then do some club coming, party things, and then I start. I do an Australian tour of my new concert show.
0: Sounds great. Yeah. Um, how many days into quarantine are you um, so far, and how has the COVID thing been for you in general? The the whole experience. It's
2: been a crazy old time in a in a funny way. It's been hard. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. A, I, I'm in day four, and this is actually my fourth quarantine that I've done because of working in bif- different places. Uh, so I'm a bit of a veteran. I quite like it, actually. I quite like the time you have to yourself. I think that's the thing about COVID. You know, it's obviously been this horrendous thing and so many people have suffered. But I um, I feel that what it's taught me is how is that how much I have enjoyed and how much I n- probably didn't have enough of in my life of sort of time to myself and just kind of downtime. So I've had a really a really great year of 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 being you know in my place in the catskills in upstate new york and the in the hills and so i've just had a really lovely time being there with grant my husband and it's been you know we've been very isolated but i've been able to wander around and you know just have a sort of life that's been really i've really enjoyed it uh, i've even actually even enjoyed not seeing people i know that sounds.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and where whereabouts were you what were you doing when covid sort of became popular i guess were you in the middle of popular or popular is that
2: what we're calling it popular when covid dropped um i was, <laughs> I, was in london. I was doing a play in london with, at the old vic uh this beckett play called um end with daniel radcliffe in it me and him and jane horrocks and carl johnson so we were we were two weeks before the run was supposed to finish uh and hilariously, that play is about um, a plague. It's about what about the world after a plague. So it was kind of this really weird thing to be doing. And then also, you know, looking out every night and suddenly starting to see people with masks on, and start, then starting to see empty seats when people wouldn't turn up. And it was, and then of course waiting for Boris Johnson to give some edict about you know closing down theatres, which they never did because of course they did that and theatres could claim insurance. So it was just so, As actually the the young, the old Vic was the first theatre to say, okay, we're closing. That was partly because Dan, um, you know, he, he the, they'd stopped the flights back to New York. So he had to get, he had to get back on one. And, and uh, I am, I'm a citizen as well of uh, America, as well as yeah. Britain. So I was able to get back after that, but he isn't. So it was, it was kind of crazy. So then I went, I left there, went to back to Scotland and got, cause I'd flown in there and went to, you know, kind of had a lot of my stuff there and I had my dog and everything. And then I went straight I spent a few days in Scotland and kind of said to my mom, I'm not seeing you. Cause I just had a thousand people a night from all over the world coughing on me for the last few, you know, a couple of weeks Yeah. and probably high risk right now. So, and then I flew back. It was like the last flight out of Saigon. I, you know, helicopter out of Saigon. I was on a flight from Edinburgh, with a very empty, apart from sort of a lot of American students from Sedanders St. University, as it turned out, <laughs> and my dog. And then I went from there. I went straight up to the to my house in the Catskills and just like hid. <laughs> are you? Were you in Dundee the whole time?
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we've been in we've been in Dundee the whole time. Yeah, we've been stuck together doing this podcast, you know. <laughs> um, but obviously that's something we're going to talk about. Actually, you're um you are relatively local to here. You um you grew up in Maniki, Conustie, which is where we both went to school um as as well. Um well, both of you. Well, we both went to Kanusti High School, yeah. Just, this is a little Kanusti High School party here today, Alan, you know? <laughs>
2: yes, yes. Um, <laughs> how
0: how was your time growing up in in Konusti and Maniki? Um when you were at high school in Conustie, what was this what you always wanted to do or what did you want to do um when you were growing up?
2: Well, I grew up the thing about me was I grew up sort of in the country you know i my dad was a forester on Panmure estate so I had a very rural even though i i mean maniki was sort of like a you know the, the sort of hot spot uh for me really you know I mean K-Kernusty was like the big city um <laughs> I, I really you know i when I went to drama school in Glasgow and at seventeen i it was crazy because I had lived you know in in the middle of a forest basically and Suddenly I was um, in a flat in the West End of Glasgow and like night buses. I, I was just crazy. I just, I was, I realized what a country boy i had been. I couldn't sleep. And anyway, um, growing up, yes, I sort of, um, I think I did want to be an actor from pretty early on. Once I realized that you could do the acting the thing and you could actually do a job, it could be a job. And it's actually kind of the first thing I was any good at, at school. Like there's a, a really lovely teacher at school called Mrs. Law, who's my English teacher. And uh, she did some, would do plays after school sometimes. And I, she asked me to be in one, and I did it. And I, that kind of was it. I, after that, I really thought that's what I want to do. I kind of just, you know, you know, when you when there's something you're good at, you just stick to it. Yeah. And kind of the only thing, it was actually the only the first thing. I mean, I was kind of clever and stuff like that. But you know, it's not. It was it was the first thing that I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't good at anything like that. I this was the first thing that I actually realised. And you know, with acting. You, and like with music as well, you realise you, when you make a connection with someone, it's palpable. Yeah. So that was a, that was an exciting thing. So yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to be either a, 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 write, a, a journal. I remember when, you know, when you have to go to the, you have to tick the boxes about which subjects you're going I mean, to take yeah, yeah. for your exams. And then you have to say what you want to be. And I remember I put an actor or a journalist. And it was so funny because <laughs> I went to, after school, before I went to drama school, I worked at DC Thompson's in Dundee yeah. for about a year, I bet. So I was technically a journalist and then I went on to become an actor. So, you know, tick, tick.
0: Con- con- conquered all of those childhood dreams right there. Conquered. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about, I mean, there's a great list of things that you've done and that you've been in, in, in such a distinguished career to date. Um, but we want to pinpoint a few different things that we've seen or that we've heard about or or that have been significant in terms of award wins and whatnot. Um, but what, what do you see when you look back, what did, did you do you see as your kind of big breakthrough? What was the kind of moment where you were realizing, like, this
2: is going to be my career? Of course, there's such a lot of them, you know. I mean, for, well, for the one to say, what, this is going to be my career, um, I mean, I guess that was, you know, pretty. I mean, I went to drama school and I, and I, and really, as soon as I, in my final year, I was one of those annoying people that I didn't, made my sort of professional theatre and film and television debuts whilst I was still at drama school. So I kind of, you know, I thought, oh, this is going to be okay. I'm going to get work because I'm even getting work before I've left drama school. That was kind of, I, I I knew that was when it was going to be my, definitely my path, but there was various things. You know, there was a play I did at the Royal Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh in 1986. When I actually, that's when I, I was like a full year and a bit after I left drama school. And that's when I realized that, oh, I see, this is what acting is about. This is how you do it. Totally had the wrong end of the stick. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know just be, uh, you just something clicks and you're like oh god i've been doing it all wrong um and then you know other things like the first you know when there's things like the first time that you get interviewed or the first time you get recognized on the street or you know things like that and then just it, it just and those things keep happening yeah. i mean uh, that that you it's more now about sort of cultural things that happen to you that you know you're in the new in the new york Times crossword puzzle. As a clue, or or like you know, like today the Daily Mail put had paparazzi me on my balcony here, stretching in my shorts the other day. (laughs) Stuff like that. I think, oh, I see. I forgot. I forgot about that. That's not really to do with my acting. Certainly to do with you know being at a certain level of whatever. So so there's always things like that. It's quite. It's quite, and especially after this year of COVID of being, you know, the great thing about wearing a mask for a year. Like I didn't really go into public situations very much. I went to make a. I went to work a couple of times in different cities, but you know, I did. I wasn't for the majority of the year. I wasn't uh, being in the company of other people. But when I did, you have a mask on, and it completely changes. Mm -hmm. When you're a well-known face, having a mask on is great Mm -hmm. because it just gives you that anonymity and that you've lost for you know for me for decades. Yeah. And um, it's sounded funny. Dan, um, I had lunch with Dan Radcliffe, He called it, he called this mask his celebrity friend, uh, or the celebrity's friend. And <laughs> what I think is really interesting is that how we've, we as people, how we have adjusted to being able to recognize people throughout this past year. Yeah. Uh, even if they have masks on. Like when I first <laughs> wore nobody recognized me. It was great. And then I remember the time I was actually at Edinburgh Airport coming back, or yeah, coming back like at the end of, Uh, just before Christmas I was in Scotland for a wee bit doing a thing and the guy in the car park at Edinburgh airport recognised me I thought I have my mask on and a hat and I thought (laughs) wow it's actually people are getting used to just looking at your eyes and your nose yeah it's so fascinating what our brains do so
1: what you're saying is you need to keep adding on to it do the fake nose and the glasses (laughs) and the beard
0: everything
2: like that maybe just a cardboard box (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 on it?
0: one of the first kind of major major things in your career obviously was when you went on to win your um Olivier award for um accidental death of an anarchist and that must have felt an incredible moment to have reached kind of that status and to well to have even have been nominated for an Olivier award must have been an incredible feeling but to win one must have yes. been at that
2: time it was it was um super overwhelming you know it really was and um, i was i was just i just turned 26. I, I felt a little out of my depth it was things were moving too fast <laughs> and um Angela Lansbury gave it to me <laughs> and uh, you know just stuff like that the whole thing was nuts yeah. and then i mean that was really kind of interesting you know after that i started started to make films actually after that you know doing theatre it sort of suddenly I was I was um, I guess just you sort of get uh, you you know people are more aware of you but uh, yeah it was a big deal and uh, I'd been nominated once before I was nominated they used to have a category of most promising newcomer and actually it was funny that the director who directed um, Endgame Richard Jones he uh, the the the, 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 you know you could could be a most promising director as well he won it in like a few years before I won my one, and I've always, I've never forgiven them. And we always laugh about it. Like when we were doing Endgame, I was like, you were the most promising newcomer. It should have been me. (laughs) (laughs) Not better at all, not better at all. (laughs) But it is funny, those sort of things, you know, it's hard to quantify what it means when you win a big award like that. But it does mean something. It means there's a shift. And for me, that was the first one. That was the first big sort of, Thing like that that had happened to me sure. and it really, and at the time i i mean like other I, other times i think you're never really prepared for these things there's yeah. you know because you don't know what they're going to be like unless you had it happen to you before so it was um it was it was a lot i remember just being completely i mean it was great of course sure. but i was just kind of overwhelmed by it a little freaked out actually
1: you uh, you mentioned there about how you were sort of then transitioning more into films. And then just a few years after, you landed, I guess, a major role, uh, playing Boris Grushenko in GoldenEye, alongside oh, wow. Piers Brosnan, Judy Dench, Robbie Coltrane. How was, how did that come about? How was that? How did it feel to sort of be in the the
2: Bond franchise? Also totally overwhelming. It was like the first, you know, I'd done a couple of films. Um, I'd done a few films you know, European films and TV films and stuff like that. This was the, and I'd done the the year before that, or actually earlier that year, that's right. I'd done uh, this, the first sort of Hollywood film It was called Circle of Friends. It was an Irish, it was in Ireland. It felt like a European film because, but it was uh, sort of a Hollywood rom-com thing. Um, And I, and so, you know, it was just that thing where you start to be put up for things in a different kind of level. And then all of a sudden, funny actually i went to the meeting for the james bond film i just got you know asked to audition for it went to meet the director and the producer barbara brookley and just got it you know and that was actually one of the (laughs) one of the craziest days of my life i was in i was just having a really terrible. as my marriage was breaking up at the time all this weird shit was happening to me and in the middle of it i was just feeling so depressed actually and and, like crazy Mm. and in the middle of it I had to go and do this. And actually, it's, I I think it's interesting now that most people, if they're going through what I was going through, would have postponed this meeting. <laughs> but It was it was interesting in a way. I mean, I'm glad I didn't because I got the part. But in a way, it was said a lot about what my self-worth was at the moment. I was like, oh, I've got to go to this meeting, even though I'm practically having a nervous breakdown. So I um, right, So it's kind of weird. I, I I remember like the 30 minutes or so I was in the room. I was completely like there, but all the time around it, it's just like a blur that day. It's so crazy. So that, and it was, it was quite a long time after before I started, you know, that was about in the summer. And it wasn't until like December or something that I um, started filming. And that was also, you know, I, I was on the first day of filming and it was like it really huge because it was the first Bond film for a long time. Uh, it, it was like, it was rebooted, you know, and it was Piers' first one as, as James Bond. And, and, and on the first day, everyone's nervous and it was kind of crazy. <laughs> It was a great. It was a great experience. I really liked that. I really enjoyed doing that film.
0: It must have been amazing. Um, and throughout your career, you've really transitioned between theatre, movies, and acting in different capacities. Really, um, mm-hmm. Spy Kids, a great film that we both love. Um, obviously, you played Fig and Flip, flip within that. And then, obviously, yeah. Tabaret is an example of a, an incredible show that you were also in and won a an, uh, Tony Award for for your obviously performances on on Broadway. Do you want to tell us about those experiences being in Spy Kids and in Cabaret as well? And also, if you have a, do you prefer doing live theatre or do you prefer film? And how are they different? Because they are very
2: different, I imagine, as an actor as well. Um, well, first of all, Spy Kids was, uh, actually, it's funny, last night from my podcast, I have this new podcast called Alan Coming Shells. and last night I interviewed, I did my quarantine here, I'm trying to use my time, well, I'm backing up a lot of episodes. So last night I interviewed Carla Gugino, who played the mum okay. in Spike. And that was really lovely. We had a really nice chat about the movie actually and uh, and just you know the making of it and all the things we remembered. So it was actually a lovely thing. Again, it was one of these times where, you know, no one, no one, exp- so it's about, I shot that in 2000. And I, after I did Cabaret on Broadway, when I won the Tony. that, you know, again was another sort of, it felt like another overwhelming you know step into another sort of level yeah so i started in all these bigger films i'd done a couple of films in hollywood before that but it was kind of i got you know a sort of slew of these uh you know films and um studio pictures and then i and so then spy kids came along and it was interesting because it was shot in austin texas with robert rodriguez who at that point was had only done these kind of um he hadn't done any kids films he was much more known for these sort of you know um not gangster one, but sort of you know uh, like Desperado and all these things. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Desperado. Yeah, with um, Antonio Banderas and these. So he had a different energy to uh, what you'd imagine a, a, a director of a film like Kids would have. And it was in Austin. It was away from the sort of the Hollywood system, so it didn't feel like we're making this big blockbuster that it became, which I think was great. It did, you know, there was no expectations. And I, we were talking last night about how I got taken into the studio office in new york it was dimension films and to, to be shown all the merch and all the stuff to talk about my press campaign and it was all like um you know uh, what do you call it happy meals and but mcdonald's <laughs> all the little toys and mcdonald's and i remember like i was going oh look at these those little <laughs> watches and cameras and those it was such fun all the little spy gadgets oh look at that and the and the guy who was sort of the head of the studio was like, alan pay attention You gave me into trouble for like and i was like well, you you showed me these things um, but so none of us actually imagined that it was going to be this big as big as it was and then it became this huge thing and it kind of you know was a was a big what's been lovely about it is that actually people who are young adults like you guys and and how old are you 28 28 so maybe you, uh, yeah your age and maybe slightly older i think maybe slightly I male mean, that's about you're about the perfect age like you were when it came out you were what 20 years ago is it You were eight, so like people, you know. So you, you you were kids, and I was this character who's sort of a magical, almost like a fairy tale character in your lives in this thing. And so, about ten years ago, when the people who were, you know, the target audience of it suddenly became adults, and I would see them out in bars and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know, the way people react to you is very interesting according to what they know you from. Sure. And suddenly, young people suddenly changed from being kind of, uh, you know, what maybe not, maybe kind of a bit like, oh God, famous guy, whatever, you know. Suddenly they would walk up to me with this kind of wide eyes and this awe in their faces and like, oh my God, you were a part of my childhood. And, and it just completely changed how young people interact with me. And it's it's been really lovely actually, because I feel it's really a nice thing to have um, to have been a part of people's lives in that way, you know, to be this sort of magical figure uh, for them. And what was hilarious is a couple, uh, year before last, I was shooting a thing in um, Albuquerque and it was a guy on the crew, a young guy, and I, he, he was the camera assistant. And I, I, and he was new. And I walked on. I saw, I saw him kind of freak out. I thought, oh, spy Kids. And um, and I could tell he didn't think it was appropriate to say anything to me, because uh, we were rehearsing and stuff. And then then we went away. And I, I was coming back from my trailer back to set, and he was coming from the camera truck. <laughs> and he said he saw me. And he went, Alan, Alan. I just wanted to, can I just say to you, I just, I, I have to say, you touched me a lot when I was a little boy. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's sometimes backfires. <laughs> I was like, let's keep on ourselves. There's a lot of the early years you probably don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then, and then, like, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, yes, you're quite, I just trying there's lots of bits to your question, Craig. Yeah, there <laughs> so, <have to> <laughs> Cabaret um, was again another overwhelming. I seem to be overwhelmed all the time. I, I suppose I am. It was a huge thing. I did it first in London in like 93, 94 with Jane Horrocks, as Sally Bowles. And that was, and that was at the Don Warehouse, And that was a sort of small and kind of, you know, ragtaggy sort of production. And then that moved to Broadway and was much bigger. And then that's when I won the Tony. And then I did it again, uh, you know, about five, four or five years ago on Broadway, the same production. And it was this, this was the one with like, um, Michelle Williams and Emma Stone and Sienna Miller, Otkov, you know, did played Sally Bowls. so that I've been had this l- huge long connection to Cabaret, and I really love that show, and I love the sort of the f- form of Cabaret as well. Mm. But you know, the, when I went to New York to do it in '98, it was another one of these occasions where I felt a bit like I had fun, but I was I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't understand what was happening to me. There was it was a huge thing. Like someone said to me a couple of years later, I was at this dinner, and this woman said, "You know, I've never seen New York." welcome anyone the way it welcomed you uh, in like 25 years or something. So I was, it was, so it made it, you know, put it in perspective. It was incredible. Just like, like, like you know, when I won the Tony, um, it was on like front page of the New York Post. People on the street were congratulating me. People, you know, it was like this, everybody knew it was a big deal. I remember when I won the Olivier, you know, it was maybe page 17 on the Evening Standard or something. And, you know, nobody... <laughs> Got on the bus and went to work, and so it's just kind of a different. I guess it's much more of a cultural thing in yeah. New York compared to what it is in London. So it was just a lot. I mean, I I loved it, and I'm really glad I did the show again all those years later because I sort of feel I um, I got to enjoy it in a way that was more about the play and the production rather than this furore that was going on around me. And then so I and I, I you know I sort of think about what the difference between that film and Theatres. I, I always would be a theatre person, first of all, um, if I had, you know, if I had a gun to my head. I would. And actually I really enjoy the thing I've done for about the last 10, 12 years, is these con- is, is doing concerts. My own, you know, in, in, me in Cabaret. I'm doing, as I said, opening this new one here. It's called Alan Cumming is not acting his age and I'm just sort of, you know, I've got all the songs now but I've got to make up my hilarious anecdotes uh, in quarantine. And I, but I really enjoy that because it's very you know, there's, when, you play, when you're in a play and you as I, you can feel that connection with an audience, but when it's you and you don't have the veil of a character between you, it's really, you have to be prepared to be really vulnerable and the connection you get with an audience when you're sort of connecting with them as you, the person, not just you, mm. the character, it's really great. And I had been very scared of doing that for a long, long time. And then suddenly an, an opportunity arose and I did it and I've done, so I've, I've kept on doing it. And I, I, I actually think that's my favorite. If I, if, you know, if in the unlikely event that someone has gone <laughs> to my head and said, you've got to choose, <laughs> I would choose that. So, and in terms of what's the difference, I don't think there is much difference. The circumstances are different, obviously, on a film set, you have to get up really early and you're, you know, you're kind of cosseted and you, it's a different way. You don't have obviously have a reaction from an audience, all, all those things. But actually, obviously in the theater, you've got to belt out a bit more. And yeah. sometimes when I've done a play and I go back to doing a film, I'm oops, yeah, sorry, I sort of think, oh, that's right. I don't have to turn the volume down. But actually what you're doing, I think is, it's, you know, it's like, I think the concert thing has taught me that it doesn't matter how big a, a venue you play. If you connect with everybody, it's like you're in the same room as them. And that's what, that's so, in a way you're just trying to do the same thing acting. Um, just, you know, you just have to pretend to be someone and mean it. Sure. And, and just, obviously you adjust the circumstances around you. But I I do think it's, just the same thing.
1: I guess the the same kind of probably applies. Then, so you then have obviously gone on to do loads of television parts as well. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest ones for you was when you were double Emmy nominated for The Good Wife. So was that
2: yeah. Yeah. triple? Triple, <laughs> triple. Oh, I do apologize. You were triple. <laughs> <laughs> double, so golden that, You're double Golden Globe. You double Golden Globe. That's this? Yeah. Oh, I think that's further down our list. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so is, is that something that you actively wanted to pursue sort of these american drama series as well um specifically like so the good wife was that something you were consciously thinking you wanted to go into as well yes it was
2: because um it was about gosh it's so 10 years oh more than 10 years now like 2010 or so what happened was i was just a little tired of you know i was living in new york I was traveling all around the world, making films and things and stuff. And I just felt, oh, I'd just like to be at home for a, you know, a while. I'd like to be have a job that works in New York. That's not the theater. And I sort of, it's interesting. I do this sometimes. I kind of put things out to the world, into the universe. And that's what I asked. I sort of said, I put out that I want to do that. I wanted to get a TV show that was in New York. And I said, I wanted to be, a, you know, obviously I want to do something good, but... I don't want to be the lead. I don't want to be in every day, but I want to have a you know an ensemble, but have a great partner, a great show. And it's and it just happened. I mean, not that actually when it came to me, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that, because this just was going to be one episode of it. You know, I just uh, my agents and manager and everything. They were like, you should do this. I was like, I don't want to. I don't understand it. It's a man. It's just this man in a suit. I don't understand who is he? What's going on? I don't get it. And um, it was also interesting, you know, like when you get older. You obviously go go into different sort of age brackets and types, right? Um, if you're lucky enough to keep working, and I that was very much something where I was like, why would they offer me this? He's a middle-aged man in a suit, and then I suddenly thought, oh, I'm a middle-aged man. <laughs> if I put a suit on, a suit on. <laughs> but and it was so it was a kind of a growing experience and a learning experience for me to think oh, that's what, I can do these parts now. I always thought, oh, I can't play people like that because I'm this crazy person. I'm this sort of, you know, a lot of the parts I played are like, you know, Mr. Floop and Nightcrawler, all the, you know, like or, Art, yeah. yeah the more, some of them weren't even human, you know, to me. Uh, <laughs> I play sort of crazy people more. And this was, I mean, he was crazy, uh, Eli on The Good Wife, but it was an interesting thing to sort of, and I, I I realized that's something now, like, you know, I'm I'm in my, I'm 56, am I? 56. <laughs> so you know my next big birthday is 60 for fuck's sake and so that's <laughs> an interesting thing that i feel like you know like those the the, the horrible daily mail uh, paparazzi shots that i saw today of me on my balcony I thought, who the hell's that old guy <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's that's an interesting it's it's in you sometimes there's things happen like that and you think oh yeah that's right i and now the parts i'm playing you know uh and, and it just happens to a run of things at the moment where I'm going to do, but I'm kind of like the older guy in a group of younger people. And I love that, it's great, but it's so funny that now I'm properly the older guy. You know what I mean? I'm not, it's not uh, sort of ridiculous that I would be that. So I, I but anyways, with Eli, I, I really wanted to do that. And it was a great experience because it was such a well written show. You know, the thing that they always said was that, you know, network, it was a, a time when the independent film scene in America kind of collapsed and people moved to television. So you had this influx of really interesting writers and producers and everything going into television and even into network television, not just cable. And that was, so that's how The Good Wife happened. And, you know, I did that for seven seasons. And it was just, and the great thing was I was able to do other things. I was, you know, I make a lot of my own work. I write, I do all these funny things. And in in the gaps, you know, in the summer, I have a sort of a three month hiatus, and I'd be able to go and do a film, or I did like the the Macbeth that I did with the National Theatre of Scotland. I did that two years running, you know, once in Scotland, once on Broadway, and it was. In, I was still able to feel like I was um, having a varied career, not just in one show. Whilst I was in the show. So it was its actually perfect. It was I didn't realise how good I had it actually until the next thing after I did, I was like the star of my own show. And I was like, oh, I hate <laughs> this. You got to be in every day, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's not nearly really as much fun.
1: Funnily enough, um, that, is, that show is the next thing on my list to ask you about. Because yeah. I'm sort of going to link it there. You sort of said how you wanted to be in New York, doing a series in New York. You, uh-huh. you at that point, you didn't want to play a lead part.
2: Uh, and along
1: yeah. long came Instinct. And you played yeah. Dr. Dylan Reinhardt, uh, watched both seasons of it. It was brilliant, by the way. Um, Thank you. It must have meant a lot for you to play that character because, as it's well documented throughout, he is a gay man married, happily married, throughout the whole season. Yeah. So tell us a bit about Instinct. How did that come about? How much did that mean to you? Because then later on, you you were quite vocal about when it got, unfortunately, cancelled that you were hoping it changed a lot of stuff and a lot of minds and a lot of thoughts for a lot of people.
2: Well, yes, because it was, I mean, one of the reasons why I did it, to be honest, was um, it was the first uh, gay leading character, like the first lead of a network sh- drama show ever on American television. Wow. So it's, it's, that's insane. I mean, there's, there's been ones on cable, but in terms of the networks, they'd never had a leading uh, gay character in a drama. And so I thought that was partly why I thought I'm going to do this you know because it seemed like for fuck's sake why has that not happened mm-hmm. it was 20 whatever it was 2018 2017 I can't remember it just seemed insane and also like it was sort of you know it's a cop show it was it wasn't like a show about aids or you know the usual problems that, that, that tends to kind of you know those those sort of more commercial mainstream shows when a gay character appears there's always sort of some drama or like you know a negativity associated with their sexuality it was, it, his sexuality was sort of, you know, the fourth or fifth most interesting facet to his character. Uh, and it just was kind of, and also he's gay. And I and he was like, a you know, a, in this, what do you call them? A, it was basically a procedural, you know, it was a case every week. And I just thought that was great. It wasn't, I didn't at all want to do a cop show. It wasn't really in my, uh, you know, bucket list at all. But I just thought, you know, this is really good. And it would be fun and... They were it was CBS and they were very nice to me and because that, that was where the uh, good wife had been and it's just one of these things you know you just sort of oh now you do the lead in your own show and so I did I did that but I was I actually felt it was more really the fact about the kind of cultural importance of a gay character being a lead in a thing and I think it was what was really interesting to me was how little fuss it caused on in sort of middle America. And I, you know, when it was on, I loved, I was also doing my concerts sometimes. Um, I was doing a tour of my Alan Cummings Sing Sappy Songs tour. And so I, I, would, uh, I would be traveling quite a lot. And uh, so it was short season. There's only 13 episodes instead of 22. And um, I would see people in airports and like, you know, um, Denver or something or somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Well, you know, that's not in the middle of nowhere, but you know what I mean. In the <laughs> middle of America. And, they, and these people going, you know, I'd meet, see these people going, it's so good to see you and your husband. You know, it's thanks for very much for this positive message. And you just forget when you live in a big city and you have lots of gay friends and you have a very, you know, out and um, public life, yeah. how many people are not living that life and, uh, and how, how difficult it is for many people and how, how that is not represented in, in sort of the mainstream. So I really liked it for that. And I also had a real blast doing it. I mean, it was hilarious being in a cop show. <laughs> I <laughs> you know Just ridiculous. There was some funny things, actually, Boyana, who's the girl in it, she's like the cop. And I'm like the, the sort of slightly crazy sleuth who's, you know, he's a profiler or something. Uh, and I'm a former spy, of course, and everything. There's all these hilarious things he's done. And I'm like the geeky one. And she's the sort of the hard bitten cop. And we're a team. Um, she's coming. She does this thing called the Blind Date Project, which is like a, it's like a you go and watch it in a bar. It's like a date, and the actor who play she plays it every time. And then the actor who comes in to the bar to play the other person is a different actor every night, and she doesn't know who it is. And the and the director, I did it once, and I'm actually doing it here in um, in Adelaide. So she's coming to do it. It's part of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, and so you you get texted by the director. Sort of, you've made up a character with her and then she texts you and calls you and tells you to do things sort of directs you Whilst it's actually going on in front of a live audience it's so exciting so Bayana is great mad as cheese and you know we we had such a laugh together and she and, she, and there was I remember my favorite thing there was a thing where you know this cop show they've all got guns and I'm, I just decided not to have a gun in the second season I just thought I'm not having a gun and they're like what and I said I don't want a gun I'm not doing it I don't want a gun and of course, what are they going to do? Fire me? But what was hilarious was that, you know, <laughs> everyone would rush on with guns and I'd just walk in like this, like Feels <laughs> that I knew. But in the first season, I did have a gun. And the only time I fired my gun was when I shot a, a, at a glass of poisoned iced tea that Whoopi Goldberg was about to drink. So I thought that was pretty OK. But I would, I would, <laughs> I, would um, I would, I remember one time I, I was practicing with the gunman. And to go at this, and I, I, I turned around to Bayana, and she was like, she was like, a, you know, a, a towering above me. I couldn't understand what happened. And it was because my legs were so wide apart when I got my gun out, my gun stance. I actually went down below, and the, and the 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 gun guy went, Alan, your uh, your gun stance is a little bit Broadway. <laughs> 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 totally, But it was a fun thing. I'm really glad I did it. Actually, it was a re- I had a really good laugh.
0: Good, yeah. Um, you, you've obviously got some great stories and memories from f- throughout your career. Um, mm-hmm. And you've spoken about, you know, how people kind of become starstruck when they see you to a point in certain parts. Um, you know, if you're doing your shopping or whatever, they're like, oh, is Alan, come, is Alan coming? Um, do you ever get starstruck? Or do you ever think, I'm, I'm a way to act with such and such person? Does that scare you? Or does it not scare you as much as it used to?
2: Um it doesn't scare me as much as I'm used to, but yes, it still happens. Like last night from, I, I interviewed Lulu for my podcast. Yeah. You know, the same Lulu. That yes. was, bit, I, I, I've met, I've known Lulu, I've met her over the years, but just like Lulu coming on my podcast. Yeah. This was like, what the f*** is going on? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't seem right. To be honest and with you, Alan,
0: that's the same feeling we had when we knew that you were coming on our podcast. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know what it feels like then. That's what I felt like last night, <laughs> I I, uh, I do get like that. I'm trying to think of an example recently that um, you know. I, I mean, also when you've done when you've been around the block a few times, you tend to have met or seen most people. Mm. But there's there's things like you know, there's certain people that I have been in the past got a little giddy. At. Like you know, um, I'm I'm such a fan of um, Christopher Guest and his films, like uh, you know, um, Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman and all those things. And I, and Eugene Levy, who's the guy, who's the dad in um, Shit's Creek, he's in a lot of his films. And I just, I've met, I, when I met Christopher Guest, I was just, I so gushed, I really <laughs> gushed. And uh, when I met Eugene Levy, I was I was a little bit of a mess as well. So it's people, it's it's kind of more, I don't know, it's just odd people like that, that I, um, you know, when I'm, I've met sort of, you know, Lady Gaga and things, and it was just sort of like, oh, hello, how nice to meet you, and we had a good laugh. And, things like that, but it's sort of, it's I don't know, it's it's, it's it's interesting, you don't quite know who it's going to be, a lot of the time it's sort of people from your childhood as well, you know, that's yeah. like, it. and so for me it's like, it's funny when it's, you know, it's, it's usually Scottish people that I get completely, I've got completely, you know, what like when Una McLean, I just think, who I love, and I've known her over the years, and her son actually went to drama school with me, and we used to go over to, but I'm just like, oh my god, it's Una McLean, and Stanley Baxter, and you know, and Things like that. I just, I, I, I find that is that connection to your childhood. So, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really. I don't know. I just kind of. I don't know I'm much more. Kind of. Hello, how are you? Like kind of thing mostly. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll never I'll,
0: forget the first time that I that I met you in in, in New York, <laughs> and I literally wandered up to you and said, "Oh, hi, Alan. I've, I've always wanted to meet you. I'm from New biggin It's not a line I ever thought that I would <laughs> utter in New York. I have to say." <laughs> No, it's well, it
2: an unusual line in general. There's not many people from New Biggin. <laughs> I, I went, but I went, um, well, actually it's a couple of years now because of COVID, but I went to see, did I tell you about the, you know, the is, Yes. Dr. Isles and Mrs. Isles, or Mrs. Isles, Do- they're both doctors, I can't remember. Um, and, you know, their kids uh, went to school with me a thousand years ago. And just recently I kind of got back in touch with them and I went round to their house and and Mr. Isles used to do the Maniki Scouts. He was the Scoutmaster. Yeah. And so you he had, you had these pictures of me of like a, of a Scout trip to Edinburgh and, like, God, it must have been the seventh... Like, you know, I was probably only about ten or eleven. Oh, hang on. My um, my, um, my uh, quarantine food thing has arrived. I've got to get it. <laughs> no problem. Hang on. Take like a takeaway. You get this little bag. <laughs> of, um, <laughs> I wonder what it is tonight. In fact, yeah, this is groundbreaking. It's
1: never been on a podcast before. The
2: Alan King's okay.
1: food is uh, is here.
2: yes, corn, corn salad, fruits, melon, bread, which of course we mustn't have. Red's <laughs> the devil, and uh, I've actually been such an old granny. Rice and something uh, because I'm vegan, and I I this um, I asked I asked the the festival, so if they could, because the first couple of days, the food was a bit, wasn't so great. And I, so they brought me this crock pot. And so I made, <laughs> and it's like a pressure cooker and it's a crock pot as well. And I was too scared to use the pressure cooker because I never used one. I always think that's going to blow up and kill you, you know, and like bash through the, I've heard those things about the top goes off and it goes through a wall. And I was just wanting to make some soup or stew or something. So I made like a, a crock pot. It takes eight hours to cook. So I was just desperate for my dinner. I had to wait eight hours to put it to cook the other day. But I just think it's, I mean, I've got my fridge full of soup now, but it's such a granny thing to do.
0: <laughs> such
2: a granny. Making soup. It's knitting next.
0: <laughs> well, do you know, you actually link nicely into it. We were going to um, do a final section to talk about what your current plans are, but obviously we've covered that. It's knitting, isn't it? It's, uh,
2: <laughs> you... Actually, you know what's coming? My bar in New York, you have knitting.
0: Do they? Yes. I don't know if you know this, we were meant to, we were meant, I was, I was meant to put on a music evening in New York um, a few years back, but you had an issue with your music license or something like that during that time. Maybe we can do it next year. Oh,
2: you know what it was, Craig, that's right. It was, um, you know, we had our cabaret license. We had to, it was just, it was the, it was a kind of a thing about 16 years ago, we had this, you know, the whoever owned the bar had not signed the correct form. And now they'd fished out this form and were saying to us, you've got to stop performing. You don't have a cabaret license. And it was just crazy. So we had this, we went there was, and they made a complaint to the uh, liquor license people. And it was just nuts. Like I was like, what am I doing? I was in these meetings having, I felt like, you know, I was in a film going, you know, this is not about me, the community here, you're supposed to be the community board. And look at the community that's come out to support us tonight. And. And we we're in this place and they said, You can't clap. There's too many of you. You can't clap and cheer because this is a residential building. So we all had to just wave our hands when someone made a speech in support of Club <sighs> Cup. It was just absolutely it was like it's it was insane. You know, like when you think, This is so nuts and 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 surreal and it's just someone is just a grumpy old shit. <laughs> <and> just <laughs> to screw things up for you. But anyway, all all worked out. But that was during was two months when we weren't allowed to actually have any performances. And that was just when you were going to do your show, Craig.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. So you oh. must come another time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're we're both coming over, actually, next year. So maybe we can maybe we can look at doing something then. Um, yeah, for Scotland Week. Yeah, we're coming over. Yeah, we're coming over to New York and then we're heading over to, to LA for Scott Week LA. Um, oh, there's
2: an LA I, one now. Oh, I knew that. That's right. This invited me to that. Yeah. Well, that'd be great. Well, let me know in advance. We could make a wee... Scottish Evening.
0: Yeah, that would be great. That would be a lot of fun. Um so current plans. Obviously you you are releasing a new book in October called Baggage. Yes. Um, yes. I wanted to ask you, you I, I read your, your other books, not my father's son. Um and so my first the first part of the question is why why are you doing a second book? And the second part yeah. of the question I suppose is how much you obviously spoke about the incredibly abusive relationship that you the, well, abusive Abuse that you suffered from your by the hands of your father.
2: Um, yeah. How do you think that has shaped you as a person as you've grown? Um, well, you know, that's really what the, the second book's about, actually, is about how I, I feel that I kind of, I mean, it's about my life, you know, after another, it's a memoir. It's what people do after a while. <laughs> you know, you write your own <laughs> memoirs. But but it's also about, after my first memoir, mm. not my father's son, I, there was this thing, you know, it was actually an incredible experience. And I realised how important it is to, Tell your story and tell your truth, because again, like the thing, you know, with people not being represented, when someone like me tells the world about stuff that's happened to me, and yet I'm still a happy person existing in the world, it really means a lot to people. And it helps them, inspires them to deal with their problems. And, you know, I got, I still get every day on social media or something, or people coming up to me, um, people saying, oh, you know, thank you for saying that. And, you know, it, it inspired me to do X, y, and Z. So that was great. But also what I didn't like was this idea that somehow I have, uh, you know, conquered and, uh, you know, triumphed and sort of I'm cured of this abusive uh, childhood I had. And that's, that is not true. And I think all of us, every single person has got like shit in their past baggage and that you, you know, is maybe not violence or anything like that, but it's obviously we're all things screw us up. And you just learn, you, you never get over it. You never, it never goes away. It just, it always stays with you and you just manage it and you just prioritize it and you get, you know, you just make it, make your life work around it, but it's always going to be a part of you. And that's what I wanted to say in this book, uh, especially as a reaction to the reaction to my first one. And that I just wanted to show my life and show the sort of the shadow of my dad, actually, you know, still now it's sort of a, uh, you know i i there's things happened to me and i there's things triggered for me and i realized that's why that's you know it's because of what i went through with him that i'm i'm affected by certain things in certain ways and it's just a question of always being aware of that and kind of cutting yourself some slack in certain situations but definitely not pretending that it doesn't happen or it doesn't exist or it doesn't affect you anymore and that's really you know i think one of the great things about covid or one of the positive things that's come out of it is this uh, way that we're all talking about our mental health much more. And I think that's been, that's obviously it's been much more important. in in this time when we've had, you know, suddenly had all our normal support things in life taken away from us. But I just think it's a great thing. I hope we keep doing it when things go back to normal because that's really what I wanted this book to be is just to sort of say, you know, I, here's, here's the, here's the other mistakes are, here's the mistakes I made in my life or the choices I made and the kind of person I became absolutely to do with this stuff that happened in my childhood and I think that is true for everyone in you know in various uh, degrees so that's why I did it and also it's I mean what I say you know the the thing I've been saying about I I I I don't want people I want people to read this to not buy the Hollywood ending yes even though a lot of it is me talking about my life in Hollywood at the same time arf arf arf
0: I, I, I loved that first book um, but obviously under, fully understood the pain that, that, and empathised with the pain obviously that, that, you, that you went through um, in, your, in your youth and I, I'm really looking forward to, to reading the new book uh, when it comes out. Um, last question before before you have to go, um, all, obviously you're in Australia, you're about to tour Alan Cumming not acting his age, um, yeah. you very kindly invited me along to the Edinburgh show when you did um, Alan Cumming sing sappy songs, it was incredible. Are we going to see Alan coming, not acting his age in, on these shows? Are we going to tour that in the UK once COVID allows us to do so?
2: Yes, I'm actually, this is exclusive. Exclusive. <laughs> uh, I'm doing it, I'm coming to the Edinburgh International Festival with that. Like there's, this year they're having, you know, a small selection of shows of different kinds in sort of outdoor, it's in a tent mm-hmm. in the quad at Edinburgh University. So I'm bringing that for four performances. At the end of August. So that's, it's, it's not like a tour of, you know, but it's, it's, I'm just doing four shows at the festival. So that'll be the next time after I do, I'm touring Australia and uh, then I'm going to do it in Edinburgh. Lovely. So hopefully yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back. And I'm actually going to do this show before it, <laughs> where I'm going to, for three <laughs> weeks before I do this, but do the shows, I'm going to do a film, a travel show with, I'm going around I'm going Scotland in a van with Miriam Margulies. The two of us are going to be like the goofy uh, double act for a show about Scotland. So that's why I'm going to have a, like a month, five or five weeks back in the homeland in uh, in August. Amazing. Well, that, that's
0: that's hugely exciting, and hopefully, hopefully, we can come along and see that show and uh, and see you put on that performance. Um, yeah, Alan, coming, um, just want to say publicly thank you very much for joining us in the podcast for your contribution to um, my song, The Highland Road, a few years ago as well, and. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, And hopefully we can um, meet again in Edinburgh, in New York, wherever that is. Okay, take care. Keep in touch.